Well, good morning. Let's find our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 7. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the gift of your word, how it is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness. You've given us revelation as to who you are, as to who we are. You've declared right and wrong. And we thank you for your spirit who, who guides us into all truth. We pray this morning as we look that we see how you are in command of all history. You're in command of time. You set the borders for the sea to a point where it cannot go past. And you control even sin. And you set limits as to what can and cannot be done is because you are the one who is almighty. And we worship you this morning. Lord Jesus, we worship you as the, as the almighty redeemer, the one who has bought us and has freed us from the slave market of sin and of death and has given us life because you are the living God. Help us to worship you aright this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we're making our way through this book, we have seen John brought up into heaven and told to write as God reveals things to him. And one thing that we have noticed as we have been studying is that John is a faithful recorder. He's basically acting as a secretary for, for the Lord Jesus. He records the things that have been, that's chapter one. He records the things that are, those are the letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three. And beginning in chapter four, we move into the last main section of the book, the things that shall be after these things. And one of the things that we're seeing is that as another vision comes along that it is set off often by a brief introduction after these things. And so when we encounter an after these things, that is a shift from what he has been talking about. Now, in chapters four and five, we see the, the great um, celebration of praise and worship in heaven as Jesus is introduced as the one, the only one who is able to take the book from the hand of God Almighty and to open its seals. And everything from, the, from that point on through chapter 19, even into chapter 20, all of that springs from the lamb opening the seals on this book. All of the judgments that come on rebellious man come out from that book. They don't come all at once. Now, we're gonna run into something this morning. When John breaks into a new vision of after these things, those are not necessarily strictly chronological. He is seeing something that God wants him to record, and ultimately, who's he want John to record these things for? For the churches, and then ultimately, for us. And so, as those happen, um, keep in mind that that is a break from what he has been talking about, but not necessarily what he is seeing is subsequent to and immediately following what he, was, what he was previously recording, okay? And that's gonna make a little more sense as we get here into chapter seven. 
Last week in chapter six, we went through and we encountered the first six seals on the book. And we found that there were four horsemen that were released and given uh, authority to begin to do, begin their judgment on the earth. The fifth seal we saw uh, the souls of those who had already been martyred during the tribulation period under the altar and um, as they're pleading to God, you know, how long, when are you going to judge and avenge what has been done, the evil that has been done. And then in the sixth seal, we, we begin to see how the, uh, it, 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 the, the intensity of the judgments starts to ratchet up a bit. Chapter seven is an interlude. So chapter six ends with a question. And the question is, uh, as you have people recognizing full well why the things that are happening are happening, right? Because they, they, they uh, well, let's just, uh, chapter six, we'll start in verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Every element of society, nobody's missing. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? They realize that the calamities that are coming on the planet earth are in fact the judgment of a holy God against sin and against sinners. They realize this, and yet what do they not do? They do not repent. They know full well who it is, and it's amazing to me, they not only recognize that it's Almighty God, they recognize it's Jesus too. And in fact, they recognize who he is. How do they reference him? He's the lamb. And so they know all of these things, they realize that it's judgment and they realize something else too. They realize they have no power to escape and they cannot resist. That's how they put it here, who's able to stand? Now in some ways, that's a rhetorical question, right? Because they can't. But praise God, there are those who can. That's chapter seven. God's gonna answer their question. And so we see, now we've, we've got the, the seals have been going and now all of a sudden chapter seven, beginning in verse one, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Now, a couple of things that are just kind of interesting here. How many angels are there? There's four. Is that literal or figurative? There's four angels. Now, are there some sayings here that are um, figures of speech? Sure, because you have the four corners of the earth. Now, there are some who would argue that this is showing the ignorance of the Bible and of its authors because obviously the earth is round and thus has no corners. Now, the idea here of the four corners of the earth, do we in fact use that saying today? 
Yeah, we do. And this idea of four corners is the idea of the totality, right? Many years ago, I used to write warrants. I would write search warrants or arrest warrants. And there was a saying that went with those warrants. When I took that to a judge for him to read and approve, the, the, the saying was is that what he could consider in approving or denying that warrant was whatever was contained within the four corners of that document. That's a means of being able to say, he can't consider something else. He can't use uh, knowledge that he may or may not have. Nor can I come in and try to offer additional verbal information for him to consider. It was what was written on those pages, the four corners of that document. We, we talk about um, the four points of the compass. What is that to, what are we trying to get at when we talk about the four points of the compass? Yeah, it's all direction. So does that mean it can only be zero degrees, 90 degrees, 180 degrees, 270 degrees? Is that what I'm getting at? No, it's covering the entire circumference, the entire um, perimeter of the compass. And so here again, we've got these four angels who have control over the wind, the four winds of heaven. Now that is actually an interesting thing. We're not gonna trace that out, but I gave you some references here. Um, Jeremiah 49, 36, Daniel 8, 8, Daniel 11, 4, Matthew 24, 31, Mark 13, 27, and Isaiah 11, 12. You can go through and you can look and see how this idea of the four winds, and often it's referred to as the four winds of heaven. Now these angels, their purpose is to assist in the administration of the wrath of God. By withholding the wind, it is going to wreak havoc with the planet. By being able to do that, and yet they're not given free reign. Verse two, and I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Now, do you realize, we, everybody, it's very common for us to hear about the mark of the beast, right? And anybody who takes the mark of the beast, and the mark of the beast can be in two locations, right? And those locations are, I realize we haven't gotten there yet, but I know y'all know this stuff, all right? Those locations are where? Forehead and wrist, and on the hand. Guess what? That is Satan trying to copy something that God does. God is placing a seal on those who belong to him. Now, first off, let, let's, let's talk about this fifth angel. He's ascending from the east and he has the seal of the living God. Why that modifier for God, the living God? Jesus, because he was dead. Okay, so Jesus was dead and is living again. You know, it's interesting. God is the only being who inherently has life. Anything else that lives derives life from him. When he made Adam, he, he forms Adam out of the dust of the earth, and then what? Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
And so God is the only one who has inherent life. That's why you'll often see him referred to as the living God, because he is the one who has life. He is the one who gives it. And therefore, he is also the one who has power to take it. This idea of a seal is the idea of demonstrating ownership and protection. And so as God is placing this mark on the foreheads of his children, he is demonstrating his ownership of them and his protection of them. Now this is not the first time that this idea has come up. So keep your fingers in Revelation 7 and turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 9. Genesis, Exodus, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 9. Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. This is talking about judgment on Jerusalem. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. The Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children and women, but do not touch any man on whom is the mark and you shall start from my sanctuary. And so here you have, now who would be those who groan and sigh over the abominations that were being done in Jerusalem? The faithful. There, and, and in the Old Testament, there is a specific term for those people. The remnant, exactly. Because you're going to have many, there were many in Jerusalem who were not faithful. And that, in fact, that's on whom this judgment is coming. And so the idea here, God knows, in fact, 1 Timothy 4.10, right? The Lord knows those who are his. He knows. Now, I do not know. In fact, in chapter 14, we'll see that the mark that is placed on the foreheads of those who believe are the names of Christ and God the Father. That's what the mark is. That, that's back in Revelation, Revelation 14, uh, 14, uh, beginning of the chapter, uh, talks about how the mark that is placed on these people, we're going to get into who these people are here in just a second, that mark is the name, or the names of Christ and God the Father. So back in Revelation. So we have a seal that is going to be placed on the foreheads of some individuals. 
They're referred to as the bondservants of our God. What word do you think might be used there for bondservant? It's doulos, slave. And so these are those who are slaves of God. And now we're going to find out who, and, and this idea of crying out, this is a, um, I guess it's kind of appropriate given what Dave has been preaching on in Philippians. Um, when it cries out, that means literally to shout or even to scream. There is emotion behind this utterance. There is fervor behind this utterance. This is not these people maintaining the straight face of, I am full of the joy of the Lord. That's not like that. And so, honestly, we're probably going to have to begin to practice here on how we respond to God and to his works. Because we're going to see that this crying out is not restricted to the angels. So who are these people? Verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So, and then he goes through and he lists out. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. So as you're going through that list, a couple of things hopefully jumped out at you. Number one, when you see Manasseh, Manasseh was who? He was one of the sons of Joseph. Who was the other son of Joseph? Ephraim. Ephraim's name is not on this list. Joseph's name is on this list. And in fact, there's another name missing. Dan. The tribe of Dan is not included here. Now, there are many. So the idea here as to who these people are, if you read it in the sense of John trying to pass on information that he is being given, who are these people? They're Jews. He lists out 12 tribes that are Jewish tribes. So there are some who are going to say that these people are representatives of the church. You have to read that in. You cannot, bless you, you cannot get that from any normal reading of this text. And in fact, Nowhere in scripture is the church referred to by the 12 individual tribes of Israel. Nowhere. And so again, if, 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 if in order to try to, to state that this is related to the church in the book of Revelation and that these people are, are members of the church, you have to read that in. They are ethnic Jews. Now, are they all of the believing Jewish people during the time of the tribulation? No, they're not. What was one of the purposes that God had for Israel in the Old Testament? Say that louder, please. They were to be a light to the, to the Gentiles. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. Now, 
where's the church right now at this moment in time in the book of Revelation? The church is in heaven, okay? So if the church is in heaven and we have millions of people coming to faith, who are the preachers? It's these people. It's them. Now we're going to run into them again in chapter 14. And it's going to talk, we give a little more information as to, as to about them. And we'll leave that for chapter 14. The idea here is that you have got a specific number, 12,000 from each of 12 tribes. And again, there's no way. Well, okay, I, I probably shouldn't put it that way. There is a way to to come up with a figurative allegory, allegorical explanation for those numbers. And it is quite the exercise in speculation. The fact of the matter is, he's taken 12,000 people from 12 tribes and he comes up with 144,000 people. And what's interesting is, when you get to chapter 14, after you've had trumpet judgments, how many of these people are there? 144,000. So the idea here about them being sealed, remember when we talked about the seal being for ownership and for protection, the idea here is that these people are God's witnesses and God is supernaturally intending, in, uh, superintending over them to protect their lives, even though many are being martyred. These are God's evangelists. They're the ones that are carrying the message. So, Dan's not present. And so, okay, why isn't Dan here? It's not said, it's not stated as to why Dan, the tribe of Dan, is excluded. Now, you can, there's a number of things that you can look at. Dan was um, often the first to go into apostasy uh, idolatry entered into the northern kingdom uh, through Dan. Uh, Ephraim is not listed. Ephraim also had issues with um, idolatry and with turning away from uh, the law and what God said they should do. So, but when you look at that, you go, well, Joseph is listed, and so could that be Ephraim? Maybe. This is a unique listing of the 12 tribes. Uh, if I remember right from the reading, uh, the tribes are listed 19 times in the Bible. And this one is unique as to how it's done. And the, there are others that are unique. Sometimes they're done by birth order. Sometimes they're done by uh, their order of their marching. Uh, sometimes uh, Levi is included. Sometimes Levi is not. When Levi is not included, that's when typically you get Ephraim and Manasseh so that you end up with 12. And so here you've got 12. When we get to, uh, if you look in Ezekiel chapter 48, we're not going to do that today. Um, when you go, but you can go to Ezekiel chapter 48 and you'll see that God has a specific way, a specific layout as to where the tribes of Israel live during the millennial kingdom. And we're going to talk about this uh, in the main service, um, the beginning of next month, in, uh, in looking at the millennial kingdom. People often say that, you know what, the millennial kingdom really only shows up in Revelation chapter 20. And that is not true. Revelation chapter 20 is where we're going to find the duration of the millennial kingdom. That's where it says, uh, I believe it is six times in seven verses, that it's going to last for a thousand years, hence the name millennial. Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 is the most complete dissertation on the millennial kingdom in scripture. It talks about a temple that will exist during the millennial kingdom. 
It talks about life in the millennial kingdom. It talks about the distribution of the tribes of Israel during the millennial kingdom. And it looks nothing like the map that you would look at in your Bible talking about where the 12 tribes received their inheritance during the time of Joshua. It's entirely different. And in the millennial kingdom, guess what? They're all there. There's none missing. They're all there. So even Dan shows up in the millennial kingdom. Dan has an inheritance among the tribes. So here we have these 144,000, 12,000 from each of 12 tribes in Israel, which again is going to, and again, so if you look at, for instance, Isaiah 60, verse 3, that, that is where it intimates that that is one of the purposes of Israel. They are to be the light to the Gentiles. And here's where they begin to fulfill it. So when you read in Romans chapters 9 to 11, talking about how for a time Israel has been set aside, they have been broken off partially so that the Gentiles can be grafted in. That is talking about the age of the church. The time of the tribulation is where Israel begins to actually do what it was God made them to do, for them to do. They're gonna be a light to the nations. And in fact, uh, God is going to rescue people without number. We're gonna meet them here in just a moment. So here you have these people. Now, again, when you look at this, this is how again, the focus in the book of Revelation, once you get past chapter four, once you get past chapter three, once you get into chapter four, the emphasis turns away from the church entirely and now the emphasis of the book is on ethnic national Israel. Does that make sense? Any questions to this point? Thank you, Gunner. Okay, so Gunner's question is, is there a way from scripture to time the two witnesses that we haven't encountered yet, but we're going to, uh, and these 144,000? The two witnesses are going to witness for 42 months, 1260 days. Um, that is, in most of the reading that I have done, that is usually equated with the first half of the tribulation period, up until the time when the, uh, the Antichrist basically takes his seat in the temple and insists on being worshiped as God. Um, the ceiling here of the 144,000, there's, again, there's a split here on how to interpret this as to when this is happening and when they are being sealed. And it's not specific. Um, on this part, I don't know that we can go back and say that the ceiling had to occur back at the beginning of the tribulation. That's not necessarily true. They were functioning as witnesses back then because we've already seen in the fifth seal, we've seen the souls of those who have been martyred up to that point in the tribulation underneath the altar. They had to hear the gospel from somewhere and it would have been from these people. So from the scripture, can we argue exact timeline for the two witnesses and these people? I don't believe so. And so when it comes to when the two witnesses exactly are ministering, I wouldn't be dogmatic about it. I think it makes more sense 
that it's the first half of the tribulation period, but I wouldn't, that, that's not a hill to die on, at least not in my opinion. Does that answer? Okay. Um, the idea of protection When you go back and look, for instance, at the plagues in Egypt, when Israel was still being held in slavery in Egypt, was Israel excluded from every plague? No, they weren't. When you have the initial plagues, especially those that Pharaoh's uh, magicians were able to duplicate. There was no uh, exclusion of Israel. That came about halfway in. It was about the first five, or five plagues, Israel was affected by those as well. Then God started making a distinction, right? This is gonna happen in Egypt. It is not gonna happen in Goshen. So when you had um, the locusts the locust and the lice and the darkness and, and those, those Israel, Goshen was excluded from enduring. Saints in the tribulation period, are they going to be excluded from suffering? Nope. We're gonna run into that here momentarily. They're not gonna be excluded from suffering. Their lives, the lives of the 144,000 are going to be protected. That does not mean that they are not suffering and having to endure all of these other, the judgments and the, and the consequences of those. Susie? Oh yeah. Susie's comment is uh, thinking of the idea here of being marked goes back to the Exodus and the idea of the blood being placed on the doorposts. And when the when the death angel came and he saw the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over that house, and and that is a mark. And again, I don't know if this is going to be a physical mark where someone can look at a believer and see, at one of these evangelists and see right here uh, visibly that you know, these people are claimed by God. The, the, inf the implication is that it is. That's the implication. It's not actually explicitly um, said. All right, let's keep going in chapter seven, verse nine. After these things, and so here again, now we've had this vision where John has uh, seen these angels. God has put a limit on their activity. You cannot carry out your function until these people are marked out. And then we've had the identification as to who these evangelists are and where they come from. Now there's another break. So by the way, let's just go back here one second. Who are 144,000 of the people who can stand when confronted with the wrath of the Lamb? These people. So who can stand? Those that are owned and marked and protected by God Almighty. They can. After these things. So now we're, we're, we're going into a different vision. After these things I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one would, could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Stop there for a moment. So, 
the language here. They're from every nation, every tribe, every people, every tongue. Does that tickle something? Have we seen this language before? Specifically, have we seen this language before in this book? You're killing me. Yes, where? You got it, hon. Five. So chapter five, again, what was happening in chapter five? Oh, man, we, we have got. You got worship going in heaven. That includes, I mean, it just keeps the crescendo, right? It starts with the four living beings and then the 24 elders jump in and then they get their instruments and then the angels come in. And finally, at the end of chapter five, it's every created thing. It's everybody and everything in praise to God. Look at chapter five, verse nine. This is, again, this is the 24 elders and the four living beings, and they've got their instruments. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so here again, when you get to chapter 7, now all of a sudden there is this innumerable host that again includes people from everywhere. They have white robes. White again being a demonstration. Again, this is actually going to be explained later in the chapter. So we don't even have to wonder who these people are because we're going to be told who they are. We're going to be told why they have white robes. The idea of palm branches, what does that represent? Okay, so Palm Sunday. Now here's the thing. When you look at why were they celebrating on Palm Sunday? And they being who, by the way? The Jews have got palm branches in their hand and they're waving them as Jesus is, is coming into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and they're taking their coats off and they're putting them on the ground for that donkey to walk on and they're waving palm branches. Why? He's coming. He's here. He being the deliverer. Now, those same people that are waving palm branches on Palm Sunday are going to be crying, crucify him in five days. Because Jesus wasn't who they expected him to be. He wasn't coming to deliver them from Rome. Because delivering them from Rome would have been temporary. He's going to deliver them from what they really needed rescuing from, right? But you can go back even further. Because when you talk about the palm branches, there was another celebration that involved palm branches. And for that, you go all the way back to the book of Leviticus. There were several festivals that were to be observed by all Israel. In fact, there were three times that all Israel was to come to the tabernacle or to the temple to present themselves before God, and they were not to come empty-handed. One of those was the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And they would take palm branches, and they would take branches from different fruit trees. The bottom line is, look, you gotta build a little tent to stay in for a week. So you go and you get some tree branches and you come over and you build this thing and you live in it for a week. Why? Because you are remembering God's provision and God's deliverance for your nation. And, you, and that was to be an everlasting festival. Yearly that was to be done on a specific day. 
And so the idea here is, again, it's celebration. This is, it's, it's not a party in the way that we think of a party. But it is a massive gathering, and it is specifically for the purpose of bringing praise and worship to God for what he has done. And so here we have, they've got their white robes, they've got their palm branches, and they cry out, they shout, they scream Every fiber of their being is going into this cry. And the cry is salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What is their body position right now at this moment? They're standing. Here's group number two who's able to stand. They are rescued from the wrath of God, from the judgment of God, because they've been bought by God. These people are the fruit of the ministry of the 144,000. As those people are faithfully proclaiming the word of God, these people have heard that and they have been rescued They've been redeemed, and they realize very well why. And it's not because of them. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels can't help themselves. Verse 11, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. All right, I wasn't gonna say anything about this because frankly, I didn't notice this until just now as we were reading that. Do you ever notice when you're reading in the Old Testament, when you're reading through Samuel or frankly Joshua, Judges, do you pay attention to pronouns? How did, Sam, how did Saul, when he was talking with Samuel, how did Saul refer to God? Your God. Samuel, he's your God. Oftentimes with the people of Israel, when they're talking to Samuel or a leader, it's, would you appeal to your God on our behalf? There are many who are very desirous of enjoying the benefits of being one on whom God sets his affection. But they don't wanna live for him. They wanna keep living for themselves and just get the fringe benefits. And so here when you look at, this is be to our God forever and ever. Verse 13, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? In John, I said to him, my Lord, you know. Does John know who these people are? No, and again, in keeping with, he, he's being a faithful recorder of what he is seeing. God is going to supply the details as to who these people are and, and their significance. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, literally the tribulation, the great one. 
and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So now we need to just go back again for a moment. When you talk about the seven year period, generally referred to as the tribulation, you've got two halves, right? You've got the first three and a half years and you've got the second three and a half years. Three and a half years equates as to how many months? 42, and to how many days on a Jewish calendar? 1260. I'm, I'm, I'm planting those seeds because we need to pay attention to those numbers because that, those time periods are specifically referred to as we continue on in this book. The Great Tribulation is the second half of the Tribulation period. It's the last three and a half years. That's when things really get nasty when it comes to judgment. Now, earlier when we were talking about how after these things, John is seeing something. This is one of those where it's not necessarily exactly chronological because we're still in the first series of three judgments and we're, we're, we haven't even gotten to, to the seventh seal yet. So realistically, are we in the great tribulation as far as the seals and those judgments are concerned? Probably not. So John is now, he's, he's, he's again, he is seeing something that is very likely something that hasn't yet occurred chronologically. It's there, it's happening at that particular moment in time. So again, it's not, that's where again, these things aren't necessarily exactly in order. The point behind this is that God's light is shining. It is accomplishing its purpose among the Gentiles, among the nations. And again, there is no group excluded. That witness is carrying forth across every people group, across the face of the planet. And it's occurring then. How do we know that? How do we know that this isn't just representing uh, people from all time and the progress of the gospel throughout the last couple thousand years? Because these people came out from when? The Great Tribulation. And so these are people specifically in that three and a half year period of time. They've washed their robes. You know, it's interesting. Um, I didn't wear white when I was a fireman. Uh, I, when, when I started in the fire department, that was a long time ago when dinosaurs roamed the earth. And um, we got bloody. That was back in the days before people wore gloves. That was back in the days before there were a lot of the communicable diseases that there are today. And so I can remember on a number of occasions uh, going back to the station or, or wherever, and I was, I, I had it all over. And you don't want to get blood on something that's white. It's not easy to clean. And yet, the blood of the lamb is what makes these robes white. With no stain, none whatsoever. And because these people have got robes, they've been purified, they have been cleansed entirely from their sin, where are they able to be? they'll be able to be face to face with God and with the Lamb. There's nothing to separate them. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Now this idea of serve, what, when we see the word serve, what is the most common word that we are encountering? 
there are some men in this room who should be able to answer that, que word, that question directly. Say it louder, please. Deacon, diakonia, to serve. That's not this word. This word is uh, letruo. And the idea here of this kind of service, this kind of service is uh, attached to and incorporated with worship. This is like priestly service. These are people who are serving God for the pleasure of doing it. They're in his presence. They serve him day and night. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Now this, this is something, I don't know if it comes across to us as it would have come across to uh, uh, the audience who's reading this in the first century. It's not just that they are able to commune with God. God is communing with them. It's God who's taking his tabernacle. They've got palm branches, right? They've got these things that are to celebrate what God has done for them. And God is taking his tabernacle and placing it over them so that they, that he can be with them. Isn't that cool? Yeah, shelter him with, uh, Susie's saying it's to shelter them with his presence. <laughs> Look, if your idea of heaven is that you're gonna be bored stiff because all you're gonna be doing is sitting on a cloud plucking on a harp, you need to start reading this and reading it intently. Frankly, we cannot even begin to comprehend this because not one of us knows what it is to be entirely, practically, without sin. We don't know what that is. When in fact, positionally, we're holy now as we're ever gonna be, right? Positionally. And yet, we still have our sin hangover we still suffer from the effects of sin. When that is past, then we are gonna be able to be in God's presence and we are not gonna be able to help ourselves because we're gonna be known. We're gonna fully know even as we are known, right? And so again, <laughs> and in fact, keep going. God spreads his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun bear down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. The first part of that is almost a direct quote from Isaiah 49.10. Now, there's, there are several interesting things here, and we've got to wrap up here in the next few minutes. Number one, they're hungering no longer. What's the implication? The implication is they were. There was a time when they were. They thirst no longer. The implication again is what? They were. The sun will beat down on them no more. What was the, what's the implication? It was. So if you were to go back, for instance, you go to Luke 16 in the, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember Lazarus, he's the beggar. He's, on the, he's outside the gate of the rich man's home. Uh, he's picking up scraps to eat. The dogs are coming and licking his sores. And he dies and he goes into the bosom of Abraham. The rich man dies and he goes to Hades. And you remember what Father Abraham said to the rich guy. You had your good things. Lazarus did not. Lazarus suffered. 
in this life. He's not suffering there. All who, does, all who are godly, right, are going to what? Suffer persecution. You wanna live godly? You wanna have a godly life? You wanna be a witness for Christ? You're gonna endure persecution. You're gonna suffer. It's to be expected. That suffering occurs now. It does not occur there. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Now this word shepherd occurs, the word, the Greek word occurs four times in the book of Revelation. This is the only time it's translated shepherd. The other three times it is translated to rule over and the characteristic of that rule is he will rule over them with a rod of iron. And it's always referring in that way to the nations. Christ is going to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. His way is going to be the way and it's going to be enforced in talking about the nations. When he's talking about his people, no. There he is the shepherd. And again, that is a rich, rich term. Because Jesus, how does Peter refer to Jesus in 1 Peter 5? Jesus is the chief shepherd under whom the elders serve as under shepherds. We're not the boss. Christ is the boss. He's the chief. And in that day, the way that he's going to act as the shepherd, he's going to guide them to the springs of the water of life. There's the water from which you'll never thirst again, right? And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So, the answer to the question of those facing the judgment of the wrath of God as to who can stand? There is an answer for that question. Those who are his, they can and they will stand. Now, it's five after, but we're gonna go down here just very briefly. If you are suffering today, and I know that a number of you are, in one way, shape, or form, be it health, be it yours, be it someone else's who you love, be it financially, be it that you are suffering the reproach of Christ, may I remind you that his, strength, his grace is sufficient, and it is sufficient today and it's not sufficient just to be able to survive or to squeak by. It is sufficient so that you will overwhelmingly conquer. And in the midst of our affliction, we need to remember that God has not made us to cower and he has not made us to slither and to crawl. He has made us to stand. And he gives us the grace that is needed for us to be able to stand and to stand in his strength. It is not about us and we aren't able to do it on our own, but he gives us what we need. And sometimes we need to simply suck it up and not be given over to whining, being given over to complaining being given over to dissatisfaction, being given over to discontentment. Christ is accomplishing his purpose and he's accomplishing his purpose in us and through us. And so we need to be about his business. Lift up your head. Do not be cast down. That is the time to grab yourself by the
I got a mic on. I'll grab this one. You grab yourself by your lapel and you preach to yourself. And if you're having trouble with that, then you go find yourself a brother or sister who can preach to you. God is honored and he is glorified when we, his children, trust him and demonstrate our trust in him when we carry on in affliction and we trust his goodness, his sovereignty, and his grace. Because in that day, we stand. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. Personally, I can't wait for the day where I can stand in your presence with joy unspeakable to give you the praise and the worship that you so rightly deserve. I know you understand that as we are, there's, there's some things that we can only understand to a point because we haven't been finally freed from sin. And yet, Lord, how we long for the day where we will be able to commune with you, to be in your presence, to be able to see you as you are. Thank you that you've made that possible. It was your strong arm that brought about salvation. Salvation does belong to you. Thank you that you are saving so many. And Father, help us to be faithful. We're not gonna be in this 144,000 folks. That's not us. And yet we are given the task of doing that very same job now in our time. Lord, help us to be faithful, that we would live faithfully, that we would speak faithfully, that we would be faithful unto death, that we may obtain the crown of life. We pray for those around the world today for whom that is not hypothetical. There are those today who will pay with their blood. Lord, help them to be faithful. Help their faith not to falter. Help us to worship you aright this morning. In Christ's name, amen.